This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Larry. Hi, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be with you. Likewise, thanks for joining me. I'm very happy to be chatting with a fellow Hopkins grad. But the main reason, of course, why I reached out to you is that I feel there's so much to learn from your somewhat unusual career pathway. So let me just say a few words uh, by way of introduction. You're a trained historian. You did a PhD in history of science and intellectual history at Johns Hopkins in 2014. Your book, based on your dissertation, came out in 2020 with the University of Chicago. It's titled Making Spirit Matter, Neurology, Psychology, and Selfhood in Modern France. Then you taught, after your PhD, that is, you taught at Wesleyan University for a couple of years, and then you moved to the private sector and ended up at Facebook, and now you work for Amazon. So this is still a rather unusual trajectory in the life of an historian, and I have lots of questions about it. So let me start by asking you first, why did you pursue your PhD in the first place to get some context for where you are now? Well, I pursued my PhD in the first place going to Johns Hopkins Humanities Center in 2008 because I wanted to be the next Noam Chomsky. That's not to say, of course, that's not to say that I wanted to revolutionize the field of linguistics, but the idea of being a public-facing intellectual responding to some of the key philosophical, social, and political issues of the time is what inspired me to enter academia generally. Mm-hmm. I came to history specifically because I came to appreciate that the philosophical problems that interested me most about how to organize society and politics on the one hand, what the nature of ourselves is, and especially mm-hmm. the relationship between mind culture and our body are not to be solved once Mm. and for all, say by a scientific or a philosophical solution. Mm. Instead, these problems evolve over time and are contingent upon different societies. And so Mm. the historical study of ideas is what motivated me to enter academia. And about a decade 
into academia, I came to realize that the historical toolkit for tackling those problems is perhaps even better used outside of academia to help understand people, markets, and products. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to talk this, to you more about it. Yeah, that. this is very interesting, actually. And there's nothing obvious about this lead to most people still, I think. So my question is, why did you move to the private sector, actually? You know, you started out with these extremely complex layered problems that potentially have no solutions in and of themselves. They can lead you to the next step, maybe, but, but, th- but there's nothing finite about pursuing these kinds of questions that you are pursuing, right? And so maybe tell me more about how you actually use that toolkit of an historian in your present role. One reason wh- that I left was I said what I had to say. Mm-hmm. I published my book, mm-hmm. Making Spirit Matter. I made my intervention in the field of the history and anthropology of science. And I was quite satisfied by that and eager to move on to something else. Mm-hmm. The other reason why I left is because I wanted two things that academics don't have much control over. One is choice over where I live. Mm-hmm. And two is a little more choice over how much money I make. Mm-hmm. And there was a time when I was a young undergraduate studying philosophy at the University of California Berkeley, and all of my friends who were also humanities and social science majors went off to law school, they went into business, and I was the black sheep who enviably in their eyes went on to a doctoral program. But I came in my 30s to realize that those old friends were doing things that I really wanted to do, such as living in New York City, Mm -hmm. eating nice meals, going on ski trips, and it was very hard to accommodate that. Uh, with my academic lifestyle. And I left. I left in the summer of 2017, bought about 50 people coffees, and tried to make sense of where historians' toolkits can bring value to companies. Mm -hmm. So how did you approach your first employer? How did you say to a random person, hello, my name is Larry, I'm an historian, please hire me? Sure. How did Larry the researcher become, or the academic researcher, become Larry the something else. And we'll talk about the something else in in a moment. Most academics generally, and historians in particular, looking to transition to jobs outside of colleges and universities can rely upon either their content knowledge or their formal knowledge. By formal knowledge, I mean the conceptual tools, the methods that we developed. Their content knowledge, I mean the period and geographical focus of our historical work. I was lucky enough to be able to come to a medical consultancy that catered to the neuroscience Mm -hmm. world and drug companies developing therapies for neurodegenerative disorders as well as surgical tools Mm -hmm. um, to bring both my content and conceptual knowledge. And so I worked as a consultant doing research at Design Science for Mm -hmm. about two years. That was my initial job after departing from Wesleyan University where I had taught from a couple years. And as a researcher, I tackled historical and anthropological questions for drug and device makers. A big one, as an example, yes, please. Was, that a, uh, was that a division of Johnson & Johnson was trying to develop a new 
clot buster to infuse in patients presenting with a stroke. When a stroke happens, time is of the essence to restore oxygen flow through the brain. When it comes to understanding where that drug might be stored, in neurology clinics and hospitals in different countries of the world, as well as who on a medical team has the authority to make decisions for treating a patient and which therapies to use in that treatment. Mm -hmm. These all differ across the world, and pharmaceutical companies can't take for granted that hospitals and neurology clinics look the same elsewhere as they do in America. Mm -hmm. So what I did was visited neurology clinics in the EU, in China and Japan, in South America, and literally stood outside the hospital at the ambulance bay waiting mm -hmm. for patients to arrive, presenting them with, presenting with a stroke, and shadowing them throughout the procedure, mm. brought together my findings and made suggestions for how that new drug ought to be adapted to these different places in the world, highly dependent as countries are on the institutional history of mm. medicine. I was going to ask, because I saw a lot of ethnography there, but of course you had to contextualize it, it sounds like, in a historical context, right? Try to see why things came about in a certain way, why they are the way they were? Yeah, why, for example, nurses are comparatively disempowered from medical decision-making mm -hmm. in America as opposed to other places like the EU where nurses have traditionally been closer consultants with neurologists as well as radiologists who are reading the brain scans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that depends a lot on the medical education, mm -hmm. licensing in the country, and those are all things that I think a historian is well positioned to understand. For sure. What did you actually have to learn on your first job, right? The idea is usually in these kinds of roles that you bring something in, but you also learn something. And I guess there's, it's nice to achieve a balance. I don't remember, did you have a foot in anthropology back in Hopkins, or do you feel like you had to discover it all anew? There was an anthropological element spending field work in neurology clinics mm -hmm. to understand how radiologists reading brain scans and neurologists interpreting and diagnosing disordered behavior would communicate both with each other and with the broader public. Mm -hmm. I had a foot in that. The better answer to your question though, what a historian really needs to learn in order to be successful beyond colleges and universities is the impact of their research on organizations. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the primary skill that I came to develop, was to mm -hmm. take the contextual and historical account of medical practice mm -hmm. and translate that into an impact that would benefit Mm -hmm. in this case, the pharmaceutical company that was our client. Mm -hmm. So that leads me to the other sort of sub-question about how you articulated your value to your first employer, because the first employer is the hardest one. Later, you can just sort of build on your experience in this completely different domain, right? Could you talk about this for, for a moment? It was challenging. Mm -hmm. I was a bit scared initially. Mm -hmm. I was a creature of the academy. <laughs> I had gone straight through ever since preschool all the way through my doctoral program when I finally graduated in, I reckon, 24th grade. Right. All life in school. 
<laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. I think it's incumbent upon researchers transitioning to the business world to ask their potential employers, what are their problems? Mm -hmm. What challenges are they facing? Mm -hmm. After all, people are not hired primarily because of their expertise or even mm -hmm. their experience. They're hired to bring value to a company. Right. And I think that's a key shift in mindset that academics should embrace. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, we would see employment in colleges and universities as a prize, mm -hmm. an award for our scholarly accomplishments. Right. Instead, in the business world, our employment is to bring value in the form of solving problems. And by shifting the conversation to just what those problems the team facing were, mm -hmm. it allowed me to better understand how I might apply my skill set and therefore mm -hmm. get that job. Interesting. Yeah. So it takes a shift of mind in order to, to get there. And it seems like we're so used to thinking about ourselves and our own accomplishments. And then there's this prize, right? And yet here you have to sort of recenter yourself in the context of the company and see yourself as part of a bigger whole, which doesn't always necessarily happen when you work for a university. It should maybe, but it doesn't necessarily happen, right? That's right. I think the realization really came to me, if I may share an anecdote, Please do. When I was attending a concert at the um, Philadelphia Symphony, mm -hmm. and at a certain moment of the concert, the conductor brought attention to the Andrew Mellon fellow oboist. And the oboist was you know, given an applause and a solo. Mm -hmm. in the next piece, and I thought, Andrew Mellon oboist. I'm funded by the Andrew Mellon Foundation. She's receiving her money from the same organization that pays me. And it just became so much clearer that both of our jobs were awards. Right. And all of that speaks to the shift in mindset away from prizes and instead mm -hmm. toward the value that our, re our historical research can bring to companies. Very interesting. Makes me think of something else, actually. The announcement that she was a Andrew Mellon oboist points yeah. to the fact that the Academy is essentially a prestige economy. Having to announce this, you know, these kinds of announcements do play a role in the Academy in a way that probably they don't matter as much in, um, in the market economy, in the business world. That's right. It's a prestige eco economy that has always been dependent on rich people's philanthropy. Right. I think if you look historically at the legacy of tenure within state-funded institutions, that it will be a blip right. in the history of scholarship. You go back centuries beforehand, and the Rene Descartes of the world were being funded right. as the educators of, for example, you know, Princess Elizabeth of Sweden. Mm -hmm. That structurally has remained the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, which, you know, sort of brings another point in my mind. The idea, I think this still very alive in the minds of some that there's this thing as pure history, for instance, somehow independent of anything, market forces, money, funding. Mm -hmm. uh, moving forward a little bit, you're a user researcher. That's correct. What does it mean? I started the user research division at Amazon Sports. And what we do as user researchers, primarily two things. We understand what the users of our products, in this case, shows such as Thursday Night Football, women's tennis, Premier League 
soccer or football if you're European, what their behavior is, what they desire, what their pain points are. And on the other hand, we talk with users or just humans in order to identify new products worth developing, new mm -hmm. designs for presenting sports, new features, new mm -hmm. ways of engaging with the game. So across those two competencies at Amazon Sports, you can think of a user researcher as one who understands the people who use a company's products for the sake of making those products better. And when you say products, I think I'm old because when I say the word product, I still think of hammers, maybe computers, zip drives. Okay. But you, you, of course, you, you are talking about digital products, correct? I'm talking about digital products if you work at Amazon Sports. I was also mm -hmm. talking about digital products when I worked previously at Facebook, mm -hmm. whether that was investigating people's understandings of privacy in order to build better privacy controls mm -hmm. in WhatsApp and mm -hmm. Instagram. Mm -hmm. Academics also have products in the form, for example, of a syllabus mm -hmm. that they teach. The department has a product in the form of its curriculum. Mm -hmm. And so I mean products in this broadest sense. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about what you do every day, actually? And you've, you've sketched out the broader you know, parameters of what you're trying to achieve, but actually, like, where do you move around? What do you do? What is it? What methods do you employ in your research? Then we're going back to the question of methods and possible parallels between history, to which we will get in a moment, but just, just to sort of get a little bit of context on, on your day-to-day -day activities. Sure. A user researcher's work begins in the same place where a historian's work begins. The identification of a problem. Mm -hmm. What is a problem that compels conviction? Mm -hmm. What is worth investigating? What is not immediately answered by itself? So just as any good PhD dissertation or book of history opens with a problem that invites the reader to care about that research, mm -hmm. so too does user research begin with a problem that the organization faces mm -hmm. in regards to users. In the case of Amazon Sports, there are a number of problems that we face. For example, how should European football fit alongside the marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Historically, those are completely different channels that one would go to in order to enjoy different forms of entertainment, comedy on the one hand and sports on the other, fitting them together in a way that's satisfying for users of Amazon Prime Video is one of the key problems that we face. Mm -hmm. Another problem that we uh, face concerns the fragmentation of media in a post cable and satellite world. Mm -hmm. As we subscribe to more streaming services, Netflix, ESPN, Hulu, and so forth in order to get our entertainment, mm -hmm. there's less a single source of truth about what's out there as one might have two decades ago open the newspaper in order to see mm -hmm. the channel guide. Mm -hmm. And so instead, streaming services are having to recreate electronic 
programming guides so that users can get a sense of the whole. These are two examples of problems that I confront. And then we set about a research program to figure out what people need and ultimately make suggestions to Amazon for how to solve these problems. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Very interesting. I didn't realize that this is so complex. And I can maybe start to see a little bit of how some of the critical concepts from your dissertation, from your book that you were thinking about as a graduate student and after maybe there, there's some there's some synchronization, there's some overlap in the kinds of issues that you're addressing now. We'll get to those in a moment. Meanwhile, were your responsibilities the same at Facebook as they are on Amazon? Speaking broadly, did you have the same issues to tackle? Did your responsibilities change over time as you were moving upward in terms of seniority, for instance, also? Facebook is an advertising company. It ultimately sells ads to put in front of users' faces, whether those faces are looking at Facebook, Instagram, or WhatsApp. And so most of the research done at Facebook was to understand how to get people to tolerate something that most of us don't really like, namely Mm -hmm. ads. And Mm -hmm. so as a user researcher, I came to realize that at Facebook, namely that the pleasure of my research depends on the stimulus that I put in front of human research participants. Mm -hmm. At Facebook, that stimulus was ultimately advertisements, and most people's reactions to that stimulus is a shrug. I shifted to Amazon Sports because I wanted that stimulus to be something that brings joy to people's lives. Mm -hmm. I find sports fascinating, and Mm -hmm. I think that not enough academics appreciate sports. Instead, they might see themselves as above these brutish, worldly concerns of the masses. Mm -hmm. I think sports is incredibly fascinating, not only for how it synthesizes the bodily and intellectual domains of our existence, I'd Mm -hmm. also hazard to say that sports might be the last social bond preventing America from going to civil war. Sports is is what allows me to touch anonymous people in the form of a high five after my team scores a goal in a bar. Mm -hmm. Sports is what allows me to find a release for the nasty xenophobic elements in all of us Mm -hmm. through games with the rival team. Sports Mm -hmm. performs so many crucial social functions in our lives, and that's why I decided to head up the research division at Amazon Sports, because that was the kind of research that I wanted to conduct with a stimulus in front of human research participants Mm -hmm. that really brought out the sources of tension, contradiction, and ultimately joy within them. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Makes me think of Juvenal's comment about breads and circuses. But of course, that sounds still condescending in some ways. Uh, I can see the ethnographic curiosity that sports can inspire. And kind of, it's interesting how you also framed it as part of something bigger, like, you know, even citizenship. So, 
I mean, we tend to think of politics, at least in America, in athletic terms, right. where parties represent teams or clubs, and the media frames politicians in terms of their strength or weakness, mm -hmm. as we might a you know player's fitness mm -hmm. on the pitch or the field. I think sports permeate so many realms of our life. Mm -hmm. What are some of your, the biggest differences between your previous work as an academic and this, and you know the, the set of assignments that you're working right now? Maybe something about structure of projects. I mean, other than the, the topics themselves, which is obvious, but on the technical levels, structure of projects, work cycles, maybe something about communication or the speed with which you have to work and the types of output deliverables. Could you say a few words about this? The speed is faster. The collaboration is wider. The communication is more frequent. Mm -hmm. All of that is the standard stereotype, and indeed it's a correct stereotype of distinctions between the academic and the business world. Mm -hmm. There are two key mindset differences between my work now as a researcher in business and my work then as a researcher in academia. Mm -hmm. The first concerns the nature of value. As an academic researcher, your research is inherently valuable for the nuance and the dominant narrative that it illuminates for the facts about previously untold histories mm -hmm. that you're able to bring to light. However, in the business world, the value of our research is instrumental. Mm -hmm. It ultimately has to serve the purposes of the organization, which is to say, make more money. Mm -hmm. So shifting from the inherent value of research to the instrumental value of research is the first key mm -hmm. mindset shift. The second is the emphasis on impact, mm -hmm. mainly in the form of product development. Mm -hmm. By that I mean, as a business researcher, the ultimate aim of my work is to make recommendations for how our strategy and products should mm -hmm. change. Mm -hmm. And if there is no suggestion for some kind of revision, mm -hmm. there's no value to the work. So let's talk about your value, but your value as an historian. Yes, that's, sure. that's what I'm interested in. This is kind of the, the, the key, the, the centerpiece of this conversation as I envision it. I'm, and I'm very curious about what's left of you as an historian. How do you contribute, how do you create value by, by leveraging your training, your thinking in certain period of your life as, an, as, a, as a historian who, who, who obviously is thinking about change over time, right? What's left of it? Where do you feel like you contribute more in that respect maybe than some other social scientists who, of, of which there are plenty of Amazon from what I understand, right? Yeah, there are. And there, there are plenty of social scientists throughout the tech world. Mm -hmm. And the business world, we just don't have a unified voice, so oftentimes our stories are opaque. Mm -hmm. But it's a great question, Patrick. Two key elements of historical practice remain mm -hmm. in my work today in the business world. That is data collection and data interpretation. Mm -hmm. When it comes to data collection, a historian casts a wide net. We collect data not only in the form of published literature, but also archival sources. Mm -hmm. For me and my work, that was letters. It was margin notes in people's personal libraries. It was one thing that I really loved was going to the libraries of Paris, checking out the records to see what prior scientists and philosophers had checked out. 
you can find yeah. we, there we are still those logs yes from the 19th century i guess yes 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 mm -hmm. the 19th century uh library logs so we cast a wide net in terms of the data media mm -hmm. that we collect and i continue to do that as a business researcher on the other hand our interpretation of that data involves distinctly historiographic concepts. And so some of the key conceptual dyads of the historical pr profession remain when we're trying to interpret data in business. For instance? For instance, are certain practices continuous over time or has a company or technology brought about a rupture mm -hmm. in people's practices? Mm -hmm. The debate between continuity and rupture is foundational to the historical discipline. True. It's also foundational to making sense of, for example, whether streaming services have mm. fundamentally changed something about the way that entertainment is consumed and purchased today, or whether it's continuous with the past. A second Just... area of conceptual dyads that we might rely upon concern the diachronicity of practices and the synchronicity of practices. Mm -hmm. As any good historian knows, you want to understand both change over time diachronically, mm -hmm. as well as also the snapshot of any single moment in time that is synchronically. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that we capture users' practices and preferences along both of these axes mm -hmm. to understand how any cross-section of behavior and attitudes synchronically mm -hmm. interacts with their evolution over time mm -hmm. diachronically is key to creating a well-rounded picture mm -hmm. of our users and that ultimately makes good user research. Fascinating. Do you actually use those words in conversations with colleagues? Absolutely not. But you do think about them and you, and you implement them into your research outlines and plans, correct? Yeah. I talk mm -hmm. about what changes and what stays yeah. the same. Right, right. Could you give an example of how historical methodologies or concepts such as the ones that you've mentioned just now, you know, how you implemented them, how you put them to work, and actually what results may have been achieved, if it's not top secret, of course. Sure. Big tech companies have been in the news for the past decade for their various privacy scandals. Correct. If you want, if you want your data secure, it's probably best of you know just to live under a rock and never go on the internet, much less open an app on your phone. And so, given that, a lot of companies, including my former employer Facebook, invested heavily in privacy education as well as new controls that allow people to choose what personal data are shared with the company and with other users on the apps. Mm -hmm. And so, when it comes to understanding the role that privacy, specifically the privacy of data, plays in people's lives, you're dealing with a fundamentally contradictory attitude. That on the one hand, people go onto social media in order to expose themselves to the world. Yet on the other hand, there's a subset of concerns that people desire to keep private. Mm -hmm. And this shifts over time. Mm -hmm. what I want to share with companies, what I want to keep to myself. And a lot of it shifts over time with broader social and economic transformations. And so mm -hmm. we developed a historical model of the stages of privacy understanding that people go through when, for example, there's a major data breach at a company, mm -hmm. after which a person might be more vigilant about mm -hmm 
their data experience the shock that it may have leaked into other places, and so it's time to shore up their data privacy across their various accounts mm -hmm. to ultimately being more mindful about their data practices and using some of the more granular controls that a company offers them. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, taking a concept like privacy, not mm -hmm. simply segmenting it according to what demographic X prefers as opposed to what demographic Y prefers, that's the traditional mm -hmm. market research approach, but instead segmenting it genetically, that is, over a time period of how mm -hmm. people react to privacy news. In terms of the, the stages of growth of organization? Yeah, yeah in terms of the stages of growth, the, the stages of understanding about their privacy that I people see. go to, mm -hmm. that is what I think a historian can bring to the understanding of uh, users. Super interesting. We've talked about the variety of sources that you know historians are trained to work with. May I ask what your sources were for this kind of project? There are primarily three. One was interviews with mm -hmm. individual people. A second was wide-scale surveys, mm -hmm. which involved, say, 10,000 people at a time ranking privacy topics according mm -hmm. to their hierarchy of concerns. And then a third was diary studies. Mm -hmm. I really love using diary studies, which will involve, say, 20 to 30 people mm -hmm offering diary entries in the form of text or audiovisual recordings over a period of about two weeks to two months that allow us to capture mm -hmm. longitudinal data about people's evolving attitudes and practices that mm -hmm. other data collection methods, such as the interviews and surveys, mm -hmm. wouldn't. Those are instead limited to cross-sectional samples of people's attitudes at a single right. moment in time. And so bringing these three different sources of data together allowed us to create a more holistic account of people's evolving privacy concerns. Interesting. And of course, the diaries, as you mentioned, are the quintessential source for an historian, yes, because it does, it is a recording of change over time. And it's also, it's in some ways deeply intimate, right? And I think historians really do like to delve into these, these very intimate experiences and how and see how they, they change. So it's there's a great point. Yeah. yeah, it's a really great point. I, I never made that connection. But I like I like what you just put down. What about impact? How do you see the impact of your study for the organization that you did it for? I understand the theoretical impact. Do you feel like that actually it made a difference for the organization? Did it, did it change an approach to organizational strategy, for instance? Is that something that you saw? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. A key outcome of user research in a business is to identify the user segments and problems that solutions have been built for. Mm -hmm. When the privacy team at Facebook and Instagram incorporated this new framework, it allowed them to better understand them addressing concern, privacy concerns at different stages of individual people's journeys. Mm -hmm. And so different products might be useful at different stages. Mm -hmm. For example, education, mm -hmm. terms and conditions, mm -hmm. words that is, might be useful at an initial stage to make help people understand what data they are sharing with the company and what is done with that data. Mm -hmm. At later stages, things beyond education might be needed because a user wants more than understanding. A user might want control. 
Mm-hmm. So, for example, offering selections to opt in or opt out of sharing first party or third party data with the company or mm-hmm. with other users are discrete products mm-hmm. that provide the control desired by people later in that evolutionary pathway. And so that's an example right there of how a framework produced from user research can mm-hmm. drive impact at an organization. That's fantastic. Um, I can't help but wonder, you know, both Amazon and Facebook are global companies. Was there a intercultural element to your research at all? Or did you work with a specific geography? Oh, absolutely. I think that's one thrilling element of work beyond academia for Mm -hmm. historians is that large companies offer much better funding for international research. And in fact, they have a much deeper need for that research given their involvement in diverse markets. Mm -hmm. Understanding the privacy concerns of people in South Asia Mm -hmm. as I went to investigate as part of this project are completely different than the privacy concerns of people in more developed Western markets. Mm-hmm. So it's absolutely imperative that international research is done for these companies. Interesting. So my other question has to do with you vis-a-vis other social scientists. You've been working with anthropologists, I imagine, a lot of yes. those out there, maybe psychologists, maybe sociologists. What could, do, you have, do you have any conversations with your colleagues where you feel like maybe angles, approaches collide constructively or otherwise? Absolutely. It's not all the time that I get to talk with other academic refugees in the business world, but when I do, it's delightful. For example, I just got out of a meeting with researchers and product managers, some of whom had come from sociology. We were developing a repository Mm -hmm. of research findings in order to make it clear what the source of data were. And my sociologist friends wanted to verify that the studies were falsifiable. Mm -hmm. And falsifiability is, I think, a standard held up to sociological research more readily than historical research, especially because the way we pose counterfactuals in history relies far more on the imagination than it does on the observation of data. And so a debate like that, where standards of distinct disciplines clashed in our discussion is a really delightful one, especially when there's a a business outcome ultimately affected by those standards. This must be a really interesting conversation, I imagine. The true interdisciplinarity out there. It's true interdisciplinarity. It's not just asking questions around the seminar table of why the speaker doesn't mention the book that I really care about. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So zooming out a little bit, you know, I've been wondering about this, that you know, there are these conversations among historians about non-academic jobs, yes, more and mm-hmm. more. But in these conversations, business remains a somewhat marginalized topic, it seems to me. It's sometimes even stigmatized because, of course, it's, you know, we talk about um, working for companies that are driven by profit. Mm-hmm. Working in archives, in museums, in non-profits, in government, uh, seems respectable, but you know, business usually gets lost in this category called "quote and beyond" unquote. So, looking back at your experiences, do you have any reflections about this at all? Just to pose it broadly at this point. My reflections hinge on the distinction I drew 
earlier in this interview mm -hmm. between the researchers formal knowledge and content knowledge mm -hmm. and I think one reason for academics interest in academic adjacent alternative career paths mm -hmm. is because they allow for a consistency of content knowledge mm -hmm. as a museum curator as a journal or publication editor I can maintain proximity to the scholarly content that interests me. Right. I don't maintain that proximity by going into the business world. Prime mm -hmm. Video Sports has nothing to do, at least in terms of content, with what I did as an academic researcher. But there is so much in relation to my formal knowledge. Right. The toolkit of a historian, both in terms of data collection and interpretation, as we've discussed, are incredibly relevant in the business world. Mm -hmm. And so I'd encourage other historians to think about jobs, not just in terms of the content relationship. Mm -hmm. And this is also what I remind a lot of historians who are completing their PhDs and considering alternative career paths, is to tell me about the value of history as a discipline. Mm -hmm. Why care about history at all? Why that mm -hmm. is, should we understand social concepts in terms of their formation over time and differentiation according to place. Right. And that if we put our reflective caps on to think about history as a discipline, then the formal skill sets come to light mm -hmm. and they have more applicability to business jobs. Right. You kind of answered another question I had, you know, about what, what do you think historians should do to create the pathways to industry in a way that other scientists have, social scientists like anthropologists. And it's interesting how you talked about, the, you know, individual reflection about the value of history. That's kind of what we're trying to do here in this conversation also. What about institutionally? Do you have any thoughts about the possibilities to realize that potential on the institutional level, on the university level, on the one hand, on the other hand, what would it take for somebody at Facebook or Amazon to actually be nervously tapping their fingers on a desk, wondering how come a historian hasn't applied to that job yet? Yeah, it's an interesting way that you ask the question. The advantage of bring histo bringing historians into diverse organizations, especially business, is that we can make history. <laughs> history doesn't have to be limited to the recording of the past. Yeah. That recording can also culminate in recommendations to change it moving forward. That's very meta, and no pun intended, giving your work history, but, right? <laughs> Historians can make history in terms of the changing the professional trajectories here. Yeah, I mean, it is very, it is very meta. If a historian wants to find a job in the business world, it's incumbent upon him or her to translate his or her domain knowledge and skill sets and experience into terms that are understood outside of the historical profession. Mm -hmm. And I think that history among the humanities and social science disciplines is already more public facing. 
I think it tends to be less esoteric than, say, philosophy, religious studies, mm-hmm. or perhaps even sociology. Mm-hmm. Given the public currency of history as a discipline, it already lends itself to translation, mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. in the literal sense that you better be good with languages if mm-hmm. you're going to be a historian. That's that's mm-hmm. part of what we do. And mm-hmm. so that's one other reason why I think historians are uniquely suited to be able to effectively translate mm-hmm. their skills so mm-hmm. that businesses can understand just how much value we bring. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, the the way you were speaking about this right now made me think how maybe this this history could be characterized as, as the quintessential kind of bridge builder, right? Because we're looking at something in the past and trying to translate into the into the relevance for the present more often than not. Um, or at least bring it in the language of the present, bring those past experiences. So in that sense maybe there's there's some there's some value to to, to the historical training too. Yeah, we've got to resuscitate the dead in order to revive the present. Right. Well, thank you very much for sharing your experiences and all these rich examples. It was a pleasure talking to you, Larry. Hey, this has been an absolute pleasure, Patrick. I encourage historians interested in exploring diverse career paths to reach out to me. I have a website larrysmcgrath.com and I think that there are so many opportunities for historians to practice our craft not only in colleges and universities but well beyond those institutions as well so I hope to have help people follow those paths if they so choose. Thanks very much.